0: Welcome everybody, thanks again for being here. I suspect by the time it's time for y'all to leave, it might be raining, so we're especially grateful that you put yourself at risk. I hope everybody brought them a bread. <laughs> um, and thank you to those of us joining online, and we hope you are not at peril of getting rained on wherever you are. Um, so it is my great pleasure to introduce our digital dialogue speaker today. It's always awesome when a new uh, junior scholar um, pops on the digital humanities scene Um, and makes a big impact, um, and our speaker today has done exactly that, Um, has already made a big impact on the field with her work, and we're very excited to have her here at Myth to present on that work and say that we knew her when. Um, (laughs) So, Silvia Fernandez is a PhD candidate with the Department of Hispanic Studies at the University of Houston. Her research is on Mexican and Latino Latina literature, with a focus on border studies, women's, gender and sexuality studies, Hispanic Archives, and Digital Humanities. Among her Digital Humanities collaborations, she co-founded the Borderlands Archives Cartography, or BAC, project, and she is part of the core team of Torn Apart, Separados and the ongoing project of United Fronteras. Please join me in welcoming Sylvia. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to put the timer because then I start talking. And <laughs> um, First of all, I want to thank everyone here for making the time to listen to, come to listen to my presentation and the people who is um, following in live stream. thank you so much. Um, thank you, Purdom, Trevor, and the whole myth group for inviting me and <clears throat> making this possible, because I, I know that behind all these events, it's a lot of efforts that need to be recognized. As Trevor just introduced me, I'm Silvia Fernandez. And I think it's important to mention that I'm a border native, um, born in El Paso, Texas. Everyone familiar with that area? And raised in Ciudad Juarez. Um, For over 25 years, I used to cross back and forth from one city to another, and that impact my view of seeing the border and what I'm doing as a, as a researcher. <clears throat> um, before I forget, um, um, if you want to follow the link for the presentation, um, here is the, <clears throat> the link, and feel free to Tweet me, send me any messages if you want to follow the conversation or if you want to have more information about what I'm gonna talk about, um, don't hesitate to contact me. In this presentation, through the use of Theory of the Flesh by Chicana Theories' Gloria Anzaldúa and Cherry Moraga, Border Theory by Deborah Castillo and Maria Socorro Tabuenca, together with post-colonial digital humanities practices proposed by Rupika Rizam, I will discuss the importance of tracing, recompiling, and documenting the cultural, literary, and digital record of the binational, transnational area of the U.S.-Mexico border. This by pointing out the procedures and challenges while working in the creation of Borderlands Archives cartography and the in-progress United Fronteras project. These two initiatives represent an effort to bring to the forefront the various ways in which historical realities, past and present political conditions, and local experiences of this region are being documented, imagined, showcased, studied, and interpreted. Nevertheless, it is important to mention since the beginning that these two projects are independent um, and are more than a product. They are a personal commitment to creating new forms of community in and out of academic environments, as well as a response to the constant attacks that the border communities confront and resist every day. So this is also something to consider within digital humanities, that many students are creating their own projects right and it's also something to consider when the sustainability of those projects are in risk because the students are moving right They don't rely on one institution and in the case that digital humanities is making an impact on the representation of communities there also is that really risky line of being part of an institution especially with the kind of representations that the project will have. So in this case, um, I want you just to keep that in mind because that's um, something that these kind of projects also portray. Before um, I start talking, I want you to ask you some of the questions. What is the first thing that comes to your mind when thinking or listening about the border? Who has been to a border region? Or does anyone know somebody or someone in here who is from any geopolitical frontera or border? Anyone? Yeah, you can talk because I want to listen, yes. Someone? Um, I've never been to a board, or to the borderlands,
2: but I've been to like the Maryland, Virginia, DC borders, um, and I do know a, one person from McAllen, McAllen, Texas,
1: Macallan. the south area of the border. So <clears throat> now, together with what you just mentioned, and I think it's also that idea of moving you toward this area because borders are all over the world. But in this case, I'm gonna talk specifically about the U.S.-Mexico border, and as you can see, this presentation will be very interactive, and I want you to ask you to take a look at your phones and search for U.S.-Mexico border, and tell me what you find there, (laughs) or the border, and tell me what are the things that come up Trevor.
0: <laughs> I just searched for the border, and Google has giving me a listing of Mexican restaurants.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have
0: movies. Uh-huh. Um,
2: so there's a movie, The Border, and it, and then the image searches, um, screenshots from the movie, and then a few images of public art go on along the border.
0: Yeah. yeah, for me, it's like 90% land without people.
1: exactly. So I want, I'm taking that into consideration. Mostly what populates the search of, in regards to the border, is this kind of images, right? If there, it's a land without people, (laughs) the border, it's perceived as a wall, right? You can see there it's a wall, 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 militarization, violence, dehumanization, overall a problem-filled area. Thus, what they do not represent is the complexity of this region, which is interconnected historically, fraternally, economically, environmentally. And that's what moves me to the projects I will be presenting. I, uh, I, was, I have been part of these projects because I wanted to see another representation of the border. I wanted to see myself represented in this area because that doesn't represent what I have been living in the border. And it's not that I'm going to hide the violence and the complexity of these areas, but it's more of looking for other ways rather than just what populates the internet. Um, With this in mind, the representation you find at first instance in the internet is a single story of the US-Mexico border. In singular, right? We just talk about border and there's different border areas and in Spanish it's more of la frontera and in the U.S. hits border rather than borderland or borderlands. <clears throat> in her talk, The Danger of a Single Story, Chimamanda Adichie argues that inherent in the power of stories is a danger, the danger of only knowing one story about a group or a region. And I quote, the single story creates stereotypes, and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. Therefore, by approaching these issues in the digital record, the incorporation of theory of the flesh, that is one where the physical realities of our lives, our skin color, the land or concrete we grew up on, all fused to create a politic born out of necessity to breach the contradictions in our experience by naming ourselves and by telling our stories in our own words. It has been essential to really reclaim the humanity of this region and the multiple communities that form it through this theory. That theory was the one that took us, um, the people that is involved in the projects and myself, to really create a project that centers humanity and that centers our perspectives of this region. So in this case, um, these are the two maps that um, are considered about talking about the border. In this case, you will see the area before um, colonization, which is a very amplified vision of what the border now looks like, right. And in the present, this is the border region, that line which encompasses cities, um, little, country, uh, little towns that involve in there. But as I told you in my specific experience, I have lived in an experience as Transfronteriza. Transfronteriza is reflected in both material activities, ways of thinking, the transfer of movement, and the use of the border space. The international movements are immersed in the local structure of the countries that share the border, as well as the total structure of the border region. This can result in a way of thinking, right, a border society. So in my case, I had the privilege of going back and forth. But there's also the issues of many communities that are in the U.S. side and they never cross, or vice versa. That that visa doesn't allow them to cross to the U.S. side. So those, the, all those perspectives were incorporated in what I'm going to discuss in the projects. Another of the theories that I want to t- talk about is that conceiving the borderlands as an intersection that shares a common land through its historical, cultural, political, and binational systems resonates with Deborah Castillo and Maria Socorro Tabuenca's observation about border studies. And I quote, It is important to take both sides, the United States and Mexico, into consideration or to be specific about which side is going to talk about or study and to recognize the material and metaphorical differences involving such transnational analysis. Otherwise, the intellectual colonialism will be perpetrated to the detriment of both. This is crucial, relevant, and necessary when working with regions of com- or communities that are divided by a geopolitical border. In this case, it is a region that encompasses the global north, the United States, and the global South Mexico. Thus, it is then important to rethink our habitat, home city, country, world, not a static place with people who enjoy fixed identities, but rather as dynamic territories and people with multiple identities. That is to say, a complex region with various representation of fluidity, migration, and mobility. And this is not only for people, right? It's also within the archives. The archives move. The projects also represent all that area and in some cases there are uh, digital projects are producing the US side but are reflecting an image of the other side of the border. So that was considered and that's why um, the border that I'm working on, it's considering both sides. In one project, it's from a period from 1808 to 1930. In the second project, it's from pre-colonial times to the present. Um, The third theory that um, it is considered in this is, in Rupika in Rizam's recent book. She proposes that those of us who are equipped with the capacity for humanities inquiries and are committed to social justice have a responsibility to intervene in the legacies of colonialism by creating, creating projects to challenge the exclusions in the record of digital knowledge. It is imperative to this bring to bring this call to action to the abundant legacy of colonialist production in regards to the border and borderlands representation. It is crucial to reclaim the humanity of communities such as the ones along the Mexico-US border by critically contextualizing and reshaping knowledge production through the use of digital methods and tools as well as collaborative practices. Therefore, through the use of theory of the flesh, conceiving the borderlands from both sides and the incorporation of post-colonial digital humanities is a way to rethink and restructure the geopolitical borders. Through these practices, it is possible to creating, in one instance, a transborder digital archive and in another, a cultural digital record by tracing, recompiling, and visualizing projects that represent the, broad, the border or contain borderlands material. Overall, it is possible to create alternative ways of documentation and representation. <clears throat> by putting together these theories and practices, it is possible to approach a decolonial thinking that introduces a critical border rethinking which contributes to a shift in the forms of knowledge in which the world is thought from the concrete incarnate experiences of colonial difference and the wounds left. These practices contribute to what Maria Lugones proposes on border thinking as an embodied embodied consciousness in which dualities and vulnerabilities are central for a decolonization of how we think about the geo body politics of borderlands knowledge. So in this case, the two, the two projects that I'm going to talk about, there's a lot of colonization in them, right? And there's a lot of different perspectives of the region. So we didn't want it to impose one identity or one representation. And we went over something that could reflect that complexity rather than just imposing or just reflecting what we thought about the border. In this sense, um, as Rupika mentions, when you're using post-colonial digital humanities, it's not just theory, theory or analysis of the area. It's putting in practice what we are th- talking about and observing. And when putting in practice post-colonial digital humanities, there's a lot of challenges. Um, In the two projects that um, I'm going to talk about in detail, um, Borderlands Archives cartography, Cartography, for example, it's a collaboration between two border natives, Mayra Alvarez and myself. We both graduate students and we decided to have a pro- an independent project, not tied to any institution. So that involves both of us paying for the platforms, taking, si- taking time aside of our responsibilities to familiarize our- ourselves with the platforms and to create the project, to present it in different conferences So that's um, some of the new workflows. In the second project, United Fronteras, we decided to create a group of scholars from different universities, but also that will be more of a personal commitment rather than just creating a project, a product that can give you um, recognition as a scholar, no, it was more of getting into the process of all of us to learn more about what digital humanities can give us in something that we're committed to work with. Building databases, as I mentioned to you, when working with a region that it's divided, you will find material that it's related to Mexico or to the United States. In this case, we had to do our own databases to put together newspapers that reflect the U.S.-Mexico border. Also from projects, we recompile those projects and create these databases that could reflect this binational region rather than one side or the other. New archive, that's the objective of both projects. It's presenting a transporter archive, in one instance from newspapers, and then in the second from projects. In those projects, there's involved a lot of what Rupika Rizam talks about, local practices, which sometimes are not considered digital humanities. So it's a lot of people in the community that are using digital tools to... Um, distribute their poetry, for example. So they go to the river, there's one project, Poets Against Walls, that they go to the river and they declaim their poetry there. And they make a channel, they make a website, and they make a narrative about that, those kind of practices. And that's what Rubika Rezan talks about local practices. So a lot of the projects in the, second, in the in United Fronteras reflect that, reflect more of the local practices rather than projects that are tied to an institution and conceptualize that idea of digital humanities. And here we're moving towards what, how they are using these digital companions. And in the second and in the last part, tools and other digital objects, Since there is no structure for a transporter archive, we use a map, a digital map, that can reflect that union between Mexico and the United States. So aside of creating these databases, we're using digital tools to reflect that. And you will see that part. So in the case of... um, let me see where I live here. Um, Borderlands Archives cartography, and you can um, visit the website, backcartography.org. Backcartography emerged in 2017. And it emerges as in a conversation when Mayra and myself we were like, how can we create something that doesn't reflect what it's out there in the news? <laughs> that they talk about this area as just violence, what can we do? Because also, if you go to the books, you will find a lot of that, too. What was there? The question was, what can we do? So, during my, um, my research in the archives, I found out that there was a lot of newspapers, a lot of literary material produced in the US-Mexico border, in the town from I was born. And I never knew about that. (laughs) When I go to the museums in Ciudad Juarez or El Paso, they talk about the center, about Mexico City or about Washington. You don't know about what has been produced in the local areas. That gives you another perspective of the importance of these places. So we started tracing newspapers from, that are hosted in NewsBank, but also we started looking at other institutions that hosted um, newspapers and that they have been digitized and make them available. In some cases, these newspapers are available freely. People can access to those newspapers. In another instances, there is the issue of um, being part of companies where you have to pay, right? Such as NewsBank, Redix, or in another cases, you have access to the newspapers because of the institution. You have to ask permission for that. So that was a challenge. That was a big challenge, particularly from the side of in Mexico, because even though we are Mexicans, we are in a U.S. institution. And they were like, you're gonna sell these newspapers, you are gonna colonize the content that is there, and it was an issue. And in Mexico, we saw that a lot of this material, it's not um, in digital form. It's in, sometimes in microfilm or sometimes physically and it, it's not even organized because it's not something that they give priority or there's a lot of lack of funding in the Mexican side. A lot of newspapers from Mexico too are hosted in the US and that's also an issue, right, because who has access to that material, who owns that heritage? So in this case, um, we started working with newspapers from 1808, as I mentioned you, to 1930. And since we wanted to reflect the transitions of the border, we in period one, it's um, newspapers that were through the Spanish Empire. And a lot of those newspapers, you will find them that are um, in a, are talking about the crown, about the empire, and it's more of that kind of patrimony, what Spain did in these regions. In the second period, it um, reflects the transition in the war of Mexico and the United States, and it's very, very interesting, that period, because in the map, you will see that there's there's less newspapers available in the U.S. side than in Mexico, but the newspapers that are in Mexico are in English, and it was directed to an audience to the army, the U.S. Army. They were informing them about what was going on in those um, territories, and that's what has been document it and make it available. And in the second part, it's a big population of newspapers, especially because of the Mexican Revolution. During the Mexican Revolution in 1910 to 1915, a lot of the concentration of newspaper was in the borderlands. And that's when you see the migration from the Mexican side to the U.S. side because they couldn't publish in Mexico because they had the threats of being killed or saying a lot of information that wasn't possible. So they migrated to the US side, And you can see that in that uh, part. And I will show you in the map. But in this case, this is the state of what we challenge when we encounter the different copyrights the different status of these newspapers that it's all over the place right it's you can find them in museums you can find them in institutions and there's a variety of um, to have a, a variety of policies to have access to that so when we recompile the those newspapers that we find out available online, this is the reflection, the first reflection that we encounter. What do you see there? In the US side, and in the US side that it's that circle, it's more production than in Mexico, right? And that gives us a colonial perspective by understanding the newspapers at first instance. It is that idea that the U.S. produces more, that they have more knowledge about (laughs) um, the literary perspective, and in Mexico, it's just few places where they will be able. But what happens, it's what it's available online, right? And in the U.S. side, the newspapers are from 1808. A lot of these newspapers belong to, the, to those periods that it can be um, debatable of who owns that material, either Mexico or the United States. But since it's there are in the United States, that's marked there, right? In Mexico, as I mentioned to you, there's a lot of newspapers but are in physical form. Which are not being reflected there. So, one of the things is how can we work with this colonial perspective that it's there? That's when we decided to create what I call the interlo- interlocking process: that it's putting together all the data of the newspapers, titles, um, where they come from, the state where they come from, and the different periods they belong. And in that sense, it was possible to create a transnational data that will reflect what is there rather than a division. But this graph doesn't reflect what we wanted. That it's the production in that border region, right? That's how, w- what took us to approach it to a map. And I'm gonna take a look, I'm gonna go directly to the map. So um, I can show you that part. Where is it here? And. In here, in Borderlands Archives Cartography, in MAP, it takes a while. As you can see, in Borderlands Archives Cartography, since it was the first project, it's made in uh, WIC, the website, uh, to make websites on WIC. We're using Carto. Everything, it's... Um, it's um, platforms that you have to pay to create this. But in this case, this map helps us to visualize that there's 288 until now of newspapers that are produced in all this area. Once you zoom in, you will see that there's more production once you go into the uh, border cities. But in here, this is what we call the creation of a transporter archive and it's an alternative way of documenting because since we don't own those newspapers, since we don't have the policies of making available those newspapers because it's under each institution, we decided to do that. We decided just to map where they are located and to extract certain information that can help the user to know if that newspaper can help them. But mostly we wanted to visualize that there's production, that there's something else rather than violence in this area. In here, if you, if you want to ch- search, you can search for periods, for example, as I mentioned to you in period three, it's a big of production. Right? All that is production from period three. And you can take a look at certain places, certain states. There's also the addresses, as I was mentioning to you. One of the things that this map is also documenting it's areas that doesn't exist anymore because of gentrification and what we did is to we went into the newspaper and look for where they were being published or where they were being distributed and that it's giving us also another kind of documentation or where was this production done where will they get together and distribute this Material, And in here you can see, we explained the protocols. Period 1, we call it colonial period that covers from 1808 to 1946. We decided on 1846 because then is the transition that becomes the Mexican-American War, which reduces the area of the border from 1847 to 1854, and the last period, 1855 to 1930. That period probably is going to change because as we collect more data, we will have to be, we will need to divide that according to certain historical periods that can give us uh, an idea of how to visualize it and how to narrate that material. Uh, Please feel free to take a look at the website, as I mentioned you, that was the baby. (laughs) And there's a lot of issues on that project that needs to be uh, fixed. But as, as graduate student, it was something aside from our responsibilities because it wasn't part of our dissertation, it wasn't part of our class project, it was a personal commitment with the region. Moving to the, the second one, which is the United Fronteras. And let me put it in the mood so I can show you that. All right. In here, United Fronteras is began in 2019. And in May, the website was launched. Um, Currently, we are calling to projects and contacting the creators in order to have the the data set to visualize it through a map and to a digital exhibition. We are a community of scholars from various disciplines and universities. The team is composed mostly of women and border natives from various regions of the Mexico-US border. The few who are not border natives have experienced this borderland particularly and closely through their life experiences with immigration, procedures, and in their research. The mission of United Fronteras is to bring together active and inactive work that leverage digital components to document the borderlands from multiple perspectives, literature, archives, art, oral histories, music, among others from pre-colonial times to the 21st century. The goal of this project is to serve as a valuable resource for encountering the border and its diverse practices and to seek out the critical work held in this complex region. This project will create alternative spaces and provide resources related to the borderlands, thus becoming an intervention to negative representations of its communities, cultures, and space. And in here, um, one of the main things is the creation of a cultural and digital record of the borderlands. At first instance, we're starting with the U.S.-Mexico border. We have trace 117 projects that are out there in the media. Some of them, as I mentioned to you, some of them are institutional, mostly in libraries. Some of them are independent, and those are more recent projects in which the creators are using digital tools to become activists, to send a message against the aggressions of the border. In another cases, there's projects that they don't call call themselves broad border projects, but that they have material that belongs to the U.S.-Mexico border. So we are identifying that for people to know about all this record that it's out there. Something that it's also very important, it's that there's a lot of these new uh, projects that don't exist anymore. And we're tracing that too. Because when using technology, there's certain moments that it comes down and the project disappears. So in this case, for example, There's some websites that they um, document that. And let me see if... Because it's not not bringing that part. But let me put this here. Uh, Here. This one, for example. In here, you will see the description of the project, Turista Fronterizo, And it's a game, a digital game. But once you go to the website, it's... uh, Let me see if it takes you... Once you go to the website, the link doesn't exist. Safari can find the server. Right? In another instance, for example, if we look for Sultanita... Sultanita... Literaria, there's records of this project. There's some images there. This project, for example, it was a recopilation of the literature of that region, and they make everything available. But what happened? It disappeared, and we are tracing that in order to also document what has disappeared about this region. And in here, for example, if you go to the image and you try to search for the project, it won't. Um, it will take you to Facebook,
0: uh,
1: but it, there's not. It's not available. So there are some different different things to observe in this record, but. Everything that we are creating in United Fronteras, it's with everyone involved. So it's a participatory project that considers live experiences as expertise that can influence the design process and the structure of the process. We have been getting together through Skype and talk about the structure and talk about what we want to transmit. Not all of us are um, digital humanities experts but that's one of the things that this project is um, forcing us to learn about it. Not just to have someone there to do all the digital stuff, no. We all want to learn about it and we all are exchanging our different knowledges. There's two things that um, we are creating in first instance. There's two databases. One of the databases is of the projects. One of the visualizations here is projects that work with U.S.-Mexico border material, other with just um, U.S. material and from Mexico. But on those two databases, one is recompiling all the information of the project, the title, the material that is there, the sources that they are using, that that part in the historical periods that they're working, and in the other is the creators who are doing these projects, right? Because that's also important in the future to compare what kind of representation they're giving about the border depending on their expertise, their background, who is involved in there, if they are sustained by an institution, if it's something independent, all that, it's also being documented in these data sets. Um, also, the material is, and here it doesn't show, but it's in English and in Spanish, and that's part of the participatory um, structure, in which some of us work more with Spanish so we're doing everything in Spanish. Others are better translating it, so they work on the translation part, so we're dividing that. And that also reflects the life in the border, right? It's that idea of navigating and learning to see what are your good things to bring to the project. Um, another thing in the future um, it's that we will be mapping those projects. And as I mentioned to you, these projects will not be imposed as we want, like, oh, this project, it's here, we're gonna put it there because they just work with that area. We will put them in this project for people to navigate in this map with a sensorial uh, um, attribution, in which you're guided by the rivers of that region, right? Those lines are the rivers from that region. And you will not know what region is until you go and take a look at the material that it's exposed in that project. As you can see, the map, it's forward. Está al revés, ¿verdad? Also that, to break that notion of the United States Um, At superior in Mexico uh, down. Um, This um, design was also made by um, one of the graphic design members, who is Patricia Flores Houston from uh, UTEP, who um, she's studying literature, but she has a background of graphic design, so so she's um, contributing in that part. Another of the things that are important, just to finish, is that we will be consulting the persons of the projects if they want to be visualizing this map, right? So we'll be contacting them to um, know more, uh, to see if they want to be there and if the description that we are giving to those projects are accurate, with, with, what they want to be included. Um, the project, it's right now, as I mentioned to you, it's in the collaborative stage in which if you know about any project that can be there or that someone will be interested in collaborating, we really appreciate that part. And in the future, this project will move towards other borderlands. The first one is the U.S.-Mexico border, but the second phase will be in Central America. We want to see what projects um, are being done in that area. So just to finish, these two projects are more than an image, right? Those kind of visualizations are more than an image in which the narrative transmits a message. And it's a word that has an identity, we have to feed those projects. We are continuously working on that to improve those projects, to learn more. So every time that the projects have been presented, we learn more about that. And we change things in the project. It's not something that is just launch and it won't change. No, as we go and we talk with a historian, the historian is like, well, you should include this. Or if we talk about with an expert, in mapping and they're like, oh, you should consider adding that and that and that, and we add that. So it's an ongoing process all the time. Um, To conclude, it is important to mention that border regions are always under constant security, right? Homeland and national security using surveillance technology to divide, control, and manipulate who and where the violence is coming from. In an effort to contest these mechanisms, we're learning to use digital companions and technology to intervene in the effects and damages that these reinforcements in the geopolitical border have done and continue to do in the cultural, literary, and digital record. With this in mind, my work in Borderlands Digital Humanities is a personal commitment to creating alternative ways to document a cultural, literary, and digital record of the Mexico-United States borderlands to resist the danger of a single story and the harms that the geopolitical division has done in this region. There's a video, I don't have time to present it, but I really recommend, I will be posting it, but in here, they're talking about a virtual border wall threatened tribal lands. This video is talking about the technology that it's currently being used and implemented in these border regions to divide the trans-border communities that have been always back and forth in this region. So there's technology against and now, we're using technology to resist that. <clears throat> and um, as I mentioned to you, um, as a member of border communities and as a graduate sto- student, it is necessary to question and consider alternative ways to work with and without the institution and university-based initiatives that own, control, and direct the material, structure, and meaning of DH projects connected to personal representations and or critical issues. In that note, I conclude opening the dialogue with this set of questions. Thank you. (laughs) Wonderful, thank you. And the floor is open for questions and
0: discussion.
2: I'm just going to wear my uh, mentoring hat for a second. Where do you find time to work on your dissertation? <laughs> like, how do you, your time management, I'm very impressed is a wonderful
0: <laughs> project, but because it's a, an aside
2: from your PhD project, I'm just wondering how you manage both and how one informs the other and vice versa. Uh,
1: well, uh, my dissertation involves the U.S.-Mexico border and its literature. It's a literature analysis about the U.S.-Mexico border but I have been very frustrated that through writing I cannot reflect what I will be able to reflect with using digital companions. So what I'm writing it's moving towards a digital project and it's with that sense of creating the material that will later be trans, uh, translated into uh, a map in order to visualize the movement of feminine characters in the US-Mexico border. So these two projects have been helping me a lot to that, to use, to experiment with this kind of tools and to see what will help with my research. But it's very, very um, tired, you, (laughs) yes. (laughs) As you can see, I don't do anything else rather than studying and involved in this project. But it has been helping me to create a community, to create a community of people that um, are from the border that I never thought I would be working together with them and to learn from other disciplines rather than just be by myself writing in a desk and not talking to anyone. It has been giving me Another perspective of what is research and how to do scholarship.
2: And thank you so much for that talk and yeah, for coming out here when are so busy. <laughs> um, so, I was thinking from the start of your talk that just thinking about how hard it is to be truly independent of institutional infrastructures, not only in terms of where you're finding resources, but also in terms of institutional intentions like, like no let us help you so what is it like to navigate those conversations so it's not about who or our website is we want to be truly
0: independent of it. we don't want the library we don't want our yeah
1: society. that has been a, a very challenging issue and i'm a graduate student i'm in a precarious <laughs> situation of but a lot of the things is the grants right what kind of grants go to these kind of projects when you are not tied to an institution or when those grants are given and they don't give priority to your projects. So it has been a challenge and I think that's a conversation that has, that it's needed in digital humanities because as we move towards more um, scholarship of the age, a lot of students are creating these projects and a lot of students are taking the decisions of these projects. But what happens when that student graduates? Who will own that project? Who will continue working with this kind of projects? And sometimes grants are limited to that because you have to be under an institution. In our case with the newspapers, that has been a limitation. There's a lot of uh, institutions in Mexico that wants to work with us, but once they know that we're not part of an institution, the the conversation is Mm closed. So it's something that, um, it opens up the dialogue to, to talk about that and to see what can be done or what are some ways to figure out this?
2: <laughs> yeah, and I will say here also, grants for this kind of projects often create as much precarity and contingency mm-hmm. as they um, help to, as much as they help to work, the work forward. So yeah, I totally agree. Yeah.
1: And I think one of the things that we encounter is that in the first project, we use platforms that you have to pay. Mm-hmm. But in the second project, we're using minimal computing. So we're learning to create our own website, not to depend on a platform that uh, asks you for money. We are, uh, we're gonna use a map that we don't need to be paying with Carto or with any other platforms that requires a membership. So those kind of ways are the, what it's guiding us towards be able to be sustainable and also to learn more about that aspect of digital humanities.
2: Hi, thank you so much for your presentation. I'm wondering if you could tell us how in this project you define the border or borderlands, because I'm wondering, um, of the earlier map that you showed, one of the first images, um, it seems to be a very narrow (laughs) swath, right? And in thinking particularly through Anzaldua's theorization of the borderland and in newer works that really kind of. Yeah, that articulate the borderland as being further into the United States, especially as there are more Latinx communities or Mexican-American communities. So I'm wondering how you came to define the border or borderlands in your project.
1: Yeah, in this, um, it was something that we had a lot of conversations with that. And we decided to work with, uh, based on the historical periods. So, for example, before 1808, from the U.S. side, we consider all that was part of Mexico or before a Spanish colony. But once you move towards 1846, which it was, um, the the nation was divided and a lot of territory was um, gained by the United States, that's when we move towards the actual border that is currently, in which there is this contact between Mexico and the United States with this line. So it, based on the historical periods, we are reducing the territory accordingly to the wars and to the treaties that have been um, made in this territory. So that was how we work on the US side. In the Mexican side, since it's a different situation that there's no ter- the, the territories from Mexico, um, on the years that we are considering the whole states in the in the Mexican side also, in the Mexican side we are considering the whole sta- the border states, but once we approach to the recent years, that's when we are reducing it just to that area. Instead of the whole state.
2: What is that area? How many miles is it?
1: I don't have the exact name, but (laughs) the exact um, miles. But um, that's something that it's available (laughs) everywhere. On the U.S.
0: side, so it looks relatively symmetrical. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But in in the U.S. side, it's more complex because um, it involves other territories that. Right now, they're not part of the border states, which is um, in Borderlands Archives cartography, you will see certain newspapers from Luciana, from 1808. But we included Luciana in that period because it was under the Spanish Empire and under the French Empire. That um, covers all that territory that was under that empire. Uh
0: Thanks, this is fascinating work, and uh, I have a question that I don't quite know how to formulate properly, so forgive me if I make any faux pas, but like, what one thing that I remember you mentioned here when you uh, had this slide was that you sort of um, said, you know, this is uh, how things were before getting colonized and after, but, you know, obviously the map on the left is also a map that is the result of colonization, right? So, how... Uh, you know, how does the, this idea of colonisation translate to uh, you know a situation that exists between through two colonised nations, mm-hmm. uh, and how does it change? I, I, I see its applicability. I just want to understand better the nuance.
1: Yeah. What we we didn't um, went deeper into the idea of how the um, empires construct a uh, map the regions rather what it is available through the newspapers. Okay. So if there's newspapers for, from certain period that's what we mapped rather than looking for material for cer- certain areas because since I mentioned that the newspapers are very limited we rely on that right, we rely on what is available and what covers that area that um, it c- could be mapped and could portray what has been produced in these territories throughout the, the years. But it was mostly, um, we rely on the newspapers rather than on the actual production of maps. That also, it's a, a very colonialist perspective of this region. And as I mentioned, we don't include newspapers before 1808 because it will require another process which is contacting the indigenous communities if they are okay with being included in this perspective of border, Mexico-US border and also if that material, it's available in a digital format. So it's, um, it's also learning from us It's a learning process of how this region is not just Mexicans and U.S. citizens. It's not just um, the space where we live. We are seeing different communities and different perspectives of the way they live and how they see the territory.
2: Uh, Thank you for your presentation. I have a general question about sources. I'm wondering if uh, maybe in the future, you would consider using different types of sources that go beyond um, newspapers and maps? And I wanted to know your thoughts on that. And I guess the context around that question, um, what really resonated to me is something that you said earlier, that you wanted to have perspective from people who actually lived on the border and I thought that different sources like material culture or parts of the built environment and memory um, might speak to that yeah in a way that newspapers we are and,
1: thinking we and I also know that
2: like some disciplines including my own prefer like newspapers and letters and you know writing, writ- the written documents. So Yeah.
1: The the newspapers was the first thing that um, came to our mind because we wanted to map all the literature that has been produced in the US-Mexico border. But that required another process completely because there's a lot of literature produced uh, of the border, but it's produced outside of the border. And in the case of newspapers, when we started encountering that there was a lot of production of the borders, um, it was something that could be approachable to map. And we talked to a librarian in Mexico that they have a big collection of magazines. And that's moving towards that to also include magazines into uh, this archival uh, documentation of what is produ- some sources that are produced in this area. But it's more of we can include a lot of things but it's more of just the time that mm-hmm. right now we were students but in the future we want also for the communities to be involved in this to know what is out there and how they can work with that and with students also to interact a lot with that and we have had the opportunity of that a lot of museums that they have this kind of material and they didn't knew about the relevance of that and how to expose that material in another forms rather than just having them in, um, just hide it. Thanks, Sophia, one more time. Thank you so much. (laughs)